I know that you are people who always sense the very love of God in your lives every day. From morning to the time your head hits the pillow at night, you are just in such intimate, loving awareness of your heavenly Father. But for the rest of us, there's the book of Job. I want to share two verses from chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, and then we'll go to Job 19. First, from Job 23, 8 and 9. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. And then we turn to one of the, the highlights of the book of Job, chapter 19. Maybe nowhere else in the book of Job does Job respond to his friends and respond to God and respond to his circumstances with such sheer hopelessness and isolation. And this is what he says. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? Now, if you're, you get left that message on your, message, you know, your, your cell phone, you might want to call back your best friend. Ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his tent about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He, God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped me from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone, and my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adverse adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me. And to camp around my tent. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me, the guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. Now I'm a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. O oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? And in the last stanza, and maybe a moment of clarity and hope, Job continues. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. 
for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. My eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Literally, my kidneys are failing. Was an ancient way to describe what Job was feeling. Then again he goes to say, and if you say, how long will we pursue him? And the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings a judgment of the sword that you may know that there is a judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't focus on the pain. Focus on the promise. I know God is alive. I talked to him this morning. So says my bumper sticker. If you feel far away from God, guess who moved from the neighborhood? It's you. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. Isn't that a Christian hymn? Today I want to talk with a lot of transparency about maybe a topic that you might not have heard yet from this pulpit and from many pulpits all around America, and that is the silence of God. What do you do when it doesn't seem God is walking with you and talking with you and telling you, Jason, I got you in this? What happens when you feel far away from God, but you feel that it's not you, but God that has moved away from the neighborhood. There is a lot of pop theology on a lot of bumper stickers in America that will suggest to you that the Christian life is mostly all about God skipping joyfully by your side, God walking and talking with you with such intimate moments God sharing, you know, and overwhelming you with the felt presence of His Spirit. What about when that doesn't happen? What about when you are like Job saying, God, I look for you in the east, in the west, in the north, and the south. I find no glimpse of you in my life. What about then? You might have been like me, one of the seven million people who purchased a few years ago this book by Henry Blackaby called Experiencing God. Experiencing God. Did you, have you read it? Carol, I see you shaking your head. No? You're just, you're just shaking your head. I just think you're enthusiastic. I'm gonna, I look at you when I need encouragement. <laughs> An otherwise good book, but the title of the book, Experiencing God, might suggest to you, along with all this pop theology swirling around in our midst might have given you the impression that God is primarily meant to be experienced. And if we're honest, isn't that sometimes how we read the Old Testament? Moses encounters a burning bush. Isaiah sees God high and lifted up on the very throne of God. You see, you know, uh, even little Gideon in the book of Judges hears directly from the Lord. King David is given an everlasting kingdom. Are you ever like me? What about me? 
That doesn't seem so fair. I want some of those experiences with God. Why all those people in the Bible, maybe I don't see it happening in my life. Doesn't seem fair. To be honest, when I get up in the morning to pray and read my Bible, there are very few mornings where I feel like God is walking and talking with me and overwhelming me with his presence. Maybe you have said before things like this in your heart of heart. What's wrong with me? Why doesn't God show up like that in my life? A burning bush would be good in my life. Aren't I a child of God as well? No less than Isaiah, no less than King David. Why do those experiences happen then, but not in my life? Philip Yancey in his book, Disappointment with God, talks about a young man named Robbie. Robbie had attended a Christian college. Robbie was already serving as a young man in Christian ministry. When Robbie experiences a series of crises culminating in his beloved fiancée breaking off his engagement with him, Robbie's at a crossroads in his life, and he's actually reading the Old Testament, and again and again, Robbie is seeing God, in a sense, walking and talking with his people, overwhelming them with his presence. And so Robbie says, tonight's the night, God. If you are real, I'm going to have it out with you right here. And so from early evening to the next morning, Robbie prays. And Robbie prays. And Robbie gets on his face in his living room before God. And he says, God, if you are there, if you are for me, God, just give me some assurance of your presence right now. Give me some assurance that you are with me in my trials and in my crisis and in this thing that doesn't make any sense to me. Nothing. At the break of dawn, the very next morning, he stops praying. He heads into his garage and pulls out his charcoal grill and starts burning. Starting with his Bible and all the rest of his Christian library. Robbie is heartbroken before the very silence of God. Why didn't God meet me like he does the saints in the Old Testament? You see, Robbie had bought into the idea that the normal Christian life is one where God overwhelms you with his presence. Maybe Robbie had not yet gotten or maybe skipped over the book of Job. Job 23 says it like this. If I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he has work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. What is Job dealing with in the very dark night of his soul? Not only the loss of his children, not only the, the loss of his business empire, not only the loss of his health, Job is also dealing with the silence of God. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been like Robbie? Have you ever been like Job? For Job, God never tells Job about this heavenly wager, that, this conversation between Satan and God that impacts Job's life so much. Wouldn't it have been great for Job if God had just said, I'm going to test you for a season 
to see how your faith is, to see if you are really someone who loves God for God's own sake. And then I'm going to restore you to your blessings. God says none of that to Job. That would have been helpful, but God is silent. If God has such a wonderful plan for my life, why doesn't he get around to telling me all about it? Well, a few months after meeting Rabbi, can't even pronounce names now, Philip Yancey goes to a small cabin in the woods and reads the Bible from cover to cover. And there in the woods, in the small cabin, just reading his word, Philip Yancey recognized here in parts of the Old Testament, here is a picture of exactly what Rabbi wanted. Clear direction, an audible voice, and an overwhelming sense of God's presence. All three, lots of times in the Old Testament. When the Israelites were at a crossroads, should we stay here or should we go there? What did they have to do? They just looked up, pillar of fire by night, cloud of, um, you know it. Getting excited here. A cloud by day. Whenever the cloud moved, whenever the pillar of fire moved, they moved. When it stopped, they stopped. How easy is that to follow the Lord? Israelite said this, should I go to battle or make peace? One day God tells him, do not go up and fight the Amorites. If you do, you will be defeated. What do you think Israelites did? They go up, they fight the Amorites, and what? They are defeated. And so Yancey sums up Israel's story with these words. Israel marched when told to sit tight, fled in fear when told to march, fought when told to declare peace, and declared peace when told to fight. And then he says something truly profound, and I don't know if you've ever thought about it like this. He says, clear guidance became as much of an affront to that generation as unclear guidance is to ours. In other words, in the Old Testament, did a clear and clear word, did an unmistakable presence of God increase the likelihood of obedience for ancient Israel? Philip Yancey, and I agree with him here, says no. That the very clarity of God's will, his walking and talking with his people, his overwhelming them with his presence, actually had a stunting effect on Israel's faith. And so you and I, sometimes our problem is that we often read the Bible like Robbie. We think those experiences of Moses and of David and of Israel are normative for every believer. God, you better give me my Moses experience. God, you better give me my Isaiah experience. And that Job's experience is the exception to the rule. When Job says, I go the north and the south and the east and the west, I catch no glimpse of God. Surely you say, I don't want the Job experience. Sign me up for the Moses experience or maybe the Isaiah experience or maybe track three. I'll take the David experience, but not the Job experience. And so what I'm trying to suggest to you today, not so subtly, is that Job's experience with God, far from being the exception to the rule, is often the norm. Philip Yancey puts it so poetically when he says this, a flash of light from a beacon on shore and then a long, dreadful time of silence and darkness. 
And he says this is the pattern we find not only in the book of Job, but throughout the rest of the Bible. You think about Abraham, the father of faith, a flash of lightning, a flash of light from a beacon on shore. God says you are going to give birth to a son. You're going to have the son of the promise. Then what happens to Abraham? 25 years. He's still waiting. Do you think Abraham experienced the silence of God during those 25 years? Flash of light from a beacon on shore, then a long, dreadful time of silence and darkness. King David, beautifully anointed by the prophet Samuel. But what happens next? He spends the next decade of his life dodging spears, sleeping in caves. Don't you think David also experienced the very silence of God? God, what is going on? You anointed me king, and then a decade later, this still hasn't happened and come to fruition? What about Joseph, one of the patriarchs of Genesis? Was he not given God-fulfilling dreams? Didn't his dreams come true at the, at the end of the book of Genesis? But first, he was sold into slavery, and he spent nights and upon nights at the bottom of an Egyptian jail. Don't you think Joseph could have said, God, what, what happened to the dreams? What happened to this fruition of a great dream that you have given me? Did I misinterpret you? Did I misunderstand you? Were you stuttering in my life? Joseph also experienced the silence of God. A flash of light from a beacon on shore, then a long, dreadful time of silence. What if God's silence was normative in the Christian life? That is outside of the Bible, outside the Word of God, where God is always speaking and God is never silent, where you can confidently place your feet and tread and learn about God's redemptive plan of love for your life. Outside of that, let me give you three questions that you might want to ask about the very silence of God. Number one is this. What the silence of God was rather normative in the Christian life so that in the purposes of God, you might learn to exercise an ever-increasing greater amount of faith. One of my mentors, David Glansman, he was a little bit like the Apostle Paul. He was a tent maker. And just like the Apostle Paul, he had some amazing Stories. I don't know if I've talked about David Glansman with you before. He was a guy, his wife would say, sometimes he's just driving down Main Street in Wichita, Kansas. He stops his SUV, gets out for 15 minutes, and he gets back in the car and he says, sorry, hon, for that. She goes, what happened? You're talking to that guy. Oh, he had to receive Christ. He just came to faith. Sorry about that. David Glansman was a guy that he experienced healings. He saw healings with his own eyes in his small group. He, he once, and his wife was there, they, they, they saw a demon like being chased from the spine of this person that got healed. And so I remember saying to him, my college years, what about me? David, like all those wonderful things. I'm still waiting for my David Glansman stories. What about you? And I remember what he said. He said something like this. Jason, I have a very hard heart and a very stubborn head. So God had to do all this to get my attention. But you have a soft heart that God wants to 
help you walk by faith and grow in wisdom. You see, if faith, as the book of Hebrews puts it, is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen, then God's silence does it not make perfect sense to help you live a life of faith and to grow in the wisdom of God? If God was always overwhelming you with audible voices and and big displays, do you think you would ever grow up into faith like the Lord wants you to? Second question concerning the silence of God. I need to ask myself, am I more concerned about how God is presenting himself to me or am I more concerned with how I am presenting myself to God? Do you get the difference? Psalm 25, a psalm of David. David begins the psalm by saying this, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Fully presenting himself before God. That's what all the Old Testament saints did. But you and I, modern Christians, are often more concerned with how God is presenting himself to me. And this is actually the polar opposite of a biblical faith. You see, a deep spirituality is more about me presenting my life before God. To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. Rather than being anxious and concerned about, well, how is God presenting himself to Jason Carter? What kind of question of faith is that? Am I being more demanding of God than is actually warranted in a biblical faith? Or am I more interested in surrendering my life, presenting my life before God, no matter how God is choosing to present himself to me in that moment? Third question about the silence of God. How do we deal with God's seeming silence sometimes in our lives? Is this question, what if you take God's silence as a compliment? What do I mean by that? One of my heroes, Larry Crabb, tells a story of his dad. His dad had spent, at the end of his life, 21 days in the hospital from a congestive heart failure and open heart surgery. And Larry is taking his dad home from the hospital after three weeks' stay. And Larry Crabb writes this, My father broke a sober silence with a weak voice from the back seat. I'm grateful for all the friends who came to visit me in the hospital. But the visitor I most wanted never came. Who, Dad? I asked with more than a little curiosity. God. God never came. Without any prompt from me, Dad waited a few seconds and then in a voice trembling with joy added, and I'm so grateful. Larry says he blurted out, what, for God's absence? He says, oh, Larry, God gave me the privilege of trusting his word in the absence of his felt presence. He must see in me a kind of faith that I can't see in myself. I was able to rest in his written promises, I think. I think that pleases him. Don't you sense your faith when all the blessings in life have been taken away for a time? That when you simply rest in his written word, how much that pleases the heart of your father. So when God is silent, we turn to his written word. And so Job was dealing with 
among his many other problems, the silence of God. When we turn to Job 19, maybe no other place in Job is Job so isolated, expressing such a profound sense of loneliness than in Job 19. First stanza, verse 1 through 6, Job is complaining about his friends. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? His friends are persecuting him with their words. But then the second stanza, and this is where we're going to do the second and fourth stanza, I think you'll see why. Second stanza, verse 7 through 12, Job actually gives us five different poetic images of God's assault upon Job. Job is saying things like this, God is not my friend, God is treating me like I am his enemy, and I'm going to express the bitterness of my soul. And so the silence of God coupled with the loss of his children, the loss of his health, the loss of his business empire, seemingly leaves Job no choice, he thinks, but to protest violently against the gates of heaven. Have you ever been here? Maybe not to the extent Job has. Let me tell you about these five different poetry. Poetry often gets shortchanged from pulpits. Not today. Verse 7. Behold, I cry out for violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. And the imagery that, the, the imagery that Job gets at there is as of, as of a civilian assaulted by thugs and thieves, unable to summon any passerby to help him in his great time of need. And so what is Job's central complaint? It's about the silence of God. We might say it like this, when I especially need a response from God, God is silent. Second image, verse 8, He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set not light, but darkness upon my path. The image is one of a traveler whose way is blocked by darkness. We want light to light our path. God sends darkness into Job's life. And so Job is complaining about the very hiddenness of God. Where is the light that you promise in your word? I see only darkness in front of me. When I especially need God to light a path, God provides darkness. Verse 9, Job says, He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. These are kingly and princely images. Whereas we might ask, what was done with all the kings and the princes after they lost a battle? Their crown was stripped. They were humiliated, stripped of all vestiges of honor. No position left for them in society. So Job is saying something like this. My faithfulness, my integrity, don't they mean anything to you, O God? When I especially need to be comforted by blessings, you take even those away. Verse 10. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope, he has uprooted, pulled up like a tree. This is the image of a plant no longer needed, completely uprooted, thrown away. Sheer hopelessness in the life of Job. When I especially need to cling to any sign of hope, God provides me not a one. God uproots my hope like an unwanted plant. And finally, you say, man, I hope my wife never tells, says stuff like this. hope my husband goes sees a counselor before he gets to, gets to this place in life. This is where Job is in his faith. Verse 11 and 12. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. 
His troops come on me together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. And so there's a huge irony, right? The images of a god amassing a huge, massive force. Troops building a siege against a ramp that were used against only large fortified cities. Job is saying, you're amassing a huge force against me? You're building a siege ramp that's usually needed only to take down fortified cities? I'm just one hapless little individual. When I especially need God's comforting presence, he overwhelms me with disproportionate power. The next time you ask for God's power, be careful. So the first stanza, Job complains against his friends. Second stanza, God is my enemy. Images of God's assault upon Job. Third stanza, he says, verse 13 through 22, all my relationships are ruined. My relatives fail me. My closest friends forget me. Even the lowliest of servants, I have to plead and beg for him to give me a drink. I am completely alone. And so just when you think, wow, Job, things can't get any worse for you. Socially isolated in complete and utter despair, light begins to shine in a very dark place. Job, was this the fruit of solitude? Did this come out of dealing with God's silence, this ray of hope in his life? Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives. Again, Job Stripped of all the second things in life. Stripped of all his blessings. Where does Job cling? Give me back my children. Give me back my business. Give me back my health. He says none of that. He has to deal with God. Can Job accept the fact that he doesn't get to choose his own suffering? Can Job concentrate on first things first? Let second things be second things in his life. Redeemer is the Hebrew word goel, which was the term for a kinsman redeemer. In the book of Ruth, Boaz redeems this poor, foreign, peasant girl, Ruth, redeems her out of complete and abject poverty because of his passionate love. And he wants to be his, her husband. And so Job has a glimpse here in his solitude, here in the silence of God, not of the first coming of the Redeemer, the Goel on the earth, but of the second coming of this Goel Redeemer who one day will walk the earth. Was Job sensing something that Paul said very later on in the first Thessalonians chapter 4? The Lord himself will come down from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise. Or perhaps when Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 15, in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Is, has Job been led to the place where he has understood the voice of God? Trust me completely and me alone, my child. What else does Job have? And so he reaches out. I know that my Redeemer lives. So this future resurrection of the body happens not in a faraway heaven, but much more shockingly, right here on earth. Here is where death occurs. Here is where the death will rise. Here is where Job sprinkled dust on his head. 
Here's where he imagines that the Redeemer at last, he will stand upon the earth. The, the word there is literally, he will stand upon the dust. The very same dust that Job sprinkled on his head. The same dust that he will go to when he dies. He says, one day, my Redeemer, I'm going to see him with my own eyes. Me and not another. I'm going to see this Redeemer in the flesh. Alive, victorious. And so what is the concluding prayer in the whole Bible, in Revelation chapter 22. The concluding prayer of the Bible is not, Lord, just take me to heaven. I'm sick of all this. I'm done with life. I am just waiting for heaven. That's not the, the final prayer. The final prayer in Revelation 22 is this. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Jesus. Be victorious on this dust, on this earth that I can trust you right here and right now in my own flesh, in my own eyes. I'm going to see it. The beautiful thing about the book of Ruth is that Boaz doesn't redeem this poor peasant Ruth because of some social obligation. He redeems Ruth because he passionately loves her and he wants to be her husband. Is this not a picture of our kinsman redeemer? Kinsman redeemer who was willing and able and so close to us in our bloodline. So is Jesus able and willing and closer than us than a brother. He was fully human, able and willing to redeem sinful man and sinful woman. Out of this love relationship, did Job see something just faintly that we experience in the reality, come Lord Jesus. Come to me on this dust, on my shame, on my sufferings one day. No matter what happens to me in this life, I'm going to see you face to face. In fact, come Lord Jesus, I'm going to see it with my own eyes. Is that not Easter hope? Is that not the hope of Easter that we just don't put back in a drawer, get back out of Easter every, oh, resurrection, hope, Easter. Okay, let's send that back. 365 days later, we're going to get it back again. No, that's a hope for an everyday life. Hope for Redeemer. Hope that is closer, a Goel Redeemer. He loves you. He is able and willing to rescue. And even when you experience God's silence, you know the truth and the hope of a Redeemer. Let's pray.